Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations for Modern Life. We're, we're diverging a little with this one. For the first time, I've actually got a guest on the show and that guest is someone who has a huge wealth of knowledge in not just Marcus Aurelius, Aurelius Stoicism in general. He's actually in the process at the moment of re-establishing Plato's Academy and the original site of Believe in Athens, which we'll learn a little bit more about. He's also the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, based on the life of Marcus Aurelius. So we can get a little more insight into Marcus's life as well, as well as giving you some great content that will no doubt help you in your own life today. So on that note, I will welcome to the show, Donald Robertson. Donald, thank you for coming on. Hi, right, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very much looking forward to our, our conversation. Excellent. Thank you. And firstly, I'm sure many of the listeners actually may well have read um, the first book on Marcus Aurelius, but uh, do you want to give us a little insight into you, how you got into Stoicism, where, you know, whenever that was, what led you down that path, um, just a brief little summary and how that book came about? Yeah, I feel a bit embarrassed to say it like this, but I was kind of into Stoicism before it was cool. Like, I, <laughs> I did my first degree in philosophy in the late 1990s at Aberdeen University and then I went to Sheffield to study an interdisciplinary centre for philosophy and psychotherapy. I was training as a psychotherapist, and I got interested in Stoicism because it seemed to me that it was very relevant to psychotherapy, and I realised it was the original philosophical inspiration for cognitive behavioural psychotherapy, but I couldn't find many books or articles about the relationship between the two, and so I started uh, writing about it, and that was, I think, around about 25 years ago now, and uh, very shortly after that, more and more books started to appear uh, presenting Stoicism to the general public. I think William Irvine's book had just come out, and then Ryan Holiday's book started coming out, and Stoicism kind of exploded and became popular. It did, yeah. Uh, but when I first got into it, it was a kind of really nerdy, niche academic subject that nobody was interested in, and people laughed at me for thinking <laughs> that anyone would ever be interested in it. And uh, so I, I wrote my first book, just which is called the philosophy of CBT. Um, just because I kind of thought, how come nobody's written a book about this already? Uh, it seemed to be like a gap, and I had it was meant to be written for academic philosophers and clinicians, for clinical psychologists and psychotherapists to read. And to my kind of disappointment, they never really read it. And instead, the the lay what we call the lay readership read it. The general public read it, and it, they viewed it as a self help book. No, no doubt that was part of, um, as you touched on, like the this, this stoicism explosion, if you like. I, I suppose no doubt that that probably came a bit from like a bit of a personal development explosion. I think that happened as well around 15, 10 years ago. Yeah. And perhaps like as that was happening, a lot of readers, have, you know, switched to that material that you were putting out for, for that reason as well. It's really interesting that you mentioned that on on like the link and it not being sort of brought up before because if you think about it in context of when where philosophy came from where psychology came from obviously psychology did kind of evolve from philosophy there's more obviously the actual understanding as to why we think certain things and that's how we do and what have you um so the link the links are you know pre- pretty clear you touched on a very interesting point, and there's a whole can of worms there, so I'll do, I'm going to throw yeah. it out there anyway. <laughs> in terms of, I'm very interested in the history of psychotherapy. So there are a number of reasons, why converging reasons, why stoicism suddenly became popular. But one of them that nobody ever mentions 
is that psychoanalytic therapy dominated psych the field of psychotherapy for most of the 20th century. And cognitive therapy only very slowly from about the 70s onwards began to rise. And it didn't really become mainstream until about the 1980s. Round about the same time that something happened in psychotherapy called the false memory scandal or controversy, which kind of affected the psychoanalytic approach to therapy. Um, so people became more aware of false memory syndrome, and that led to a lot of concerns and problems about more uh, past-focused like psychoanalytic approaches to therapy. And so there was a turning point when the Oprah Winfrey show, for instance, this is a good kind of benchmark for these things, started to... Uh, was doing more kind of recovered memory stuff and then completely abandoned that, distanced itself from it and started to get life coaches like Dr. Phil on. So people, the culture mm. shifted um, because yeah. of a scandal or controversy that erupted in the 1980s and people started to embrace life coaching and cognitive therapy a lot more, including the media. Um, and then stoicism was kind of caught up in that. Like people thought, well, stoicism has been around since you know, ancient Greece, and, and it, it's the kind of great granddaddy of all of these here and yeah, now focused it's completely approaches. Agree. Yeah, I, I think that's a brilliant way to put it as well, because one, one of the things with stoicism, that when you really, really get into it, obviously there's living in accordance with nature and what have you, and that, that kind of then brings you to that point of like controlling your own mind and realising whatever's going on is going to be for that like it's in accordance with nature don't fight it therefore don't hold resentment to things don't hold resentment to others who may have harmed you or events that are outside your control actually see where there's the benefit to that and then if you relate that obviously to sort of psychoanalytics psychotherapy it's often like people holding a i mean if you yeah obviously psychoanalytics came around for like the extreme trauma side of things but ultimately we all have a continuum of mental health you know, so I think like obviously in recent years, people have wanted to understand psychology to a degree to help themselves be the best version of them as opposed to just get out of trauma. But if you obviously harbour any sort of negative um, emotional states to anything, similarly, if you set yourself up for fantasy with positives and stuff, then that's what's going to bring you to these like cascading emotions and what have you. And stoicism probably fits in there perfectly. Fits in perfectly. It kind of caught up in the kind of shifting culture or zeitgeist. And then there was another completely different sort of thing that happened if you cast your mind back. Like, you know, it makes you feel old now if you realise that this happened around about 22 years ago. But a movie came out called Gladiator. Like, yes. That and was, I didn't know who Marcus Aurelius was then, I will admit. <laughs> is that, some of the people, you know, listening to your show probably weren't even born when that movie came out, which yeah. is kind of scary to think now. But Gladiator came out, I think, in the year 2000. And, you know, the first act of that movie featured Richard Harris playing Marcus Aurelius. And although he's not the main character in the movie, like, the fact is that loads of people then went out and started reading the meditations after that, that, that did happen off the back of it, did it? I didn't, yeah, I wasn't aware because yeah. at that time I wasn't in stoicism. I would have been uh, around 17 years old. So I remember the film for the film. And obviously it's only later they watch it with a different kind of you know appreciation to it for Here's that a, aspect. I'll but. give you a little bit of trivia. My, I, I heard um, reading some of the kind of interviews and things like that, but because um, I was researching, there's a new, there's Gladiator 2s being made at the moment. But I heard that Russell Crowe was actually really into the meditations and he was kind of pushing right. for more of the philosophical content to have been incorporated into the first Gladiator movie. That's interesting. But they didn't really, yeah. they didn't really do it in the end. Um, 
Yeah. Wait, was he into it before, or do you think it was like the the whole he got you know off off of this movie and then suddenly like went delving and got fascinated by it? Or I'm not sure. Like I haven't heard that. Like I, I kind of mm. I got the impression that he was more into it than uh, than Ridley Scott, for example, and that he was kind of like, yeah. you know trying to push a little bit more for a bit more follow. It would have been awesome if there had been just even one or two yeah. more <laughs> follow three references. There's like one or two really kind of fleeting vague references to stoicism in that but i'm hopeful like that gladiator 2 might possibly have a little bit more stoic philosophy yeah maybe it goes back to slightly earlier in in marcus's life as opposed to continuing from from after his death or what have you well it's i think it's (laughs) it's the story from what i understand it's the story of the character they call lucius in the movie um, oh, okay. His yeah. Marks are really his grandson, the little kid. Yeah. Um, when he's growing up, and I, I would imagine that in order to have some sort of continuity, continuity, they're probably going to have to refer back to the legacy of mm. Maximus, the main character, and maybe to Marcus Aurelius as well. And also, since Stoicism has become hugely popular since the first movie yeah. came out, um, and I'll, also I understand that the screenwriter for it read How to Think Like a Roman Emperor as part of his background research Brilliant. for putting together the script. So there might be like a little bit more like, stoicism that sneaks that, into that. That would movie. be wonderful. That would be wonderful. be interesting to see. <laughs> yeah. So with you obviously getting get into stoicism more from an academic side straight away, I mean, obviously now I'm taking Hang you though. back, but but was it um, was this something that happened in your life that made you sort of go down that path? Or Because, I mean, I know, you know, for me, for example, I, my background was always fitness. I mean, I actually, funny what, what you mentioned about being sort of odd, being in stoicism back then. I was one of the first people sat there at train stations eating out of Tupperware and all this like 20 years ago, you know. So um, I felt the so kind of understand the same thing now, whereas obviously now everyone goes through the gym and what have you, don't they? So, But then I went through some stuff in my life uh-huh. that led me on this path and suddenly discovered um, around the start of the explosion, to be honest, like stoicism. And But yeah, was there anything particular that led you there or...? Well, ultimately, it's a bit of a long story, but my, my father um, passed away when I was kind of fairly young. I was about 14 years old, and he was a, a Freemason because um, that was a big thing among uh, my all my friends' fathers were Freemasons in the town yeah. where I grew up. It's part of Scottish culture in a way because Robert Burns, our national bard, Rabbi Burns was a, a master Mason. And so my, after my father passed away, he didn't really leave much behind except his books on Freemasonry, and I read them, and I couldn't make head nor tail of them, except there was a lot of references to these four cardinal virtues, and I saw the names Plato and Pythagoras kept cropping up, (laughs) and I saw these kind of like vague symbolic allusions to Hellenistic philosophy. So I went off on this path of reading the Bible, learning a little bit of Hebrew. Um, I started to read the New Testament, started to read Apocryphal, Gnostic, New Testament, and that I realised that that, the stuff that they left out of the New Testament. Here's a little bit of random trivia for you, by the way. Like, No, no, this is, this is great, because I've looked at uh, a lot of the Gnostic stuff with Plato and that recently. Well, here's well. some mind... I, I, like, there's a, <laughs> I like trivia that people are like, that can't be true. I'm like, this is true, buddy. <laughs> like, the, the Gnostic gospel... So in 1940s, in a place called uh, Nahamadi in Egypt, they yeah. found all these books that had been hidden yeah. um, under a boulder. And they were like a collection of Gnostic gospels, like in codex, codices, and books. 
and uh, a lot of stuff that was left out in the New Testament. Now, one thing we learn is that a lot of the stuff that was left out is heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. There's a lot of kind of mm. Neoplatonic influence in particular in it, and there's some, maybe possibly some Stoic influence as well. But in one book in particular, they had this kind of like their Bible, um, which has all these apocryphal gospels in it, and also includes an excerpt verbatim in Coptic from Plato's Republic featuring Socrates, right? So there was a version... Okay, okay I did not know this. In so a was parallel gonna, was universe... Was book, like, Secret, Secret of John or something, I think it was called. But, yeah, yeah, like but yeah. the Gospel of Thomas and all these kind of things. Like, I loved all those books when I was, like, a teenager. And uh, Elaine Pagel's the, the Gnostic Gospels had come out at the time, and I read the, went and read the, the Gnostic uh, Gospels. It's part of this trying to understand Freemasonry and kind of the Kabbalah and all yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it got me reading Plato, right? Because Plato's like Socrates. So Plato writes these dialogues in which Socrates is a speaker. Yeah. Like Socrates, there's a version of the Bible that has Socrates in it, which is crazy. It seems crazy. Like it's, it's like amazing. A yeah. parallel yeah. universe, you know, like Socrates might have been in our version of the Bible, like, but that version was destroyed, uh, except for this copy that was buried under a boulder in the Egyptian desert, right? You have to be careful before <laughs> going on to why it might have been destroyed or anything like that. Let's, <laughs> I know, people are going to say, this sounds like a conspiracy, this sounds crazy, but no, straight up, this is a historical fact. Like, yeah. um, there's, a, there's a chunk of Plato's Republic that they put in their version of the Bible, because the other bits of it were heavily influenced by Neoplatonic philosophy. So I went off and I read Plato, and then I went to university and I wanted, I did a philosophy degree and I wanted to kind of get a sense of direction and purpose in life, I think. So I was learning about Freud and psychotherapy and I was studying Buddhism and I was learning meditation and reading about philosophy. I studied Plato and Aristotle at university. But in most undergraduate philosophy curricula, they don't cover the Stoics because academics yeah. will say the Stoics take concepts from Plato and Socrates and some from Aristotle and other earlier philosophers, and all they do yeah. is work out the practical application of them to daily life. So why would you want to study that, is what people would say to me. That's kind of important, And I thought, but that's exactly why we want to study it. <laughs> right, that's, why, that's what everyone wants. So when I was training in psychotherapy, I thought, maybe I should study the Stoics then. And I, I read Pierre Hadot's superb books, The Inner Citadel, What is Ancient Philosophy? Um, philosophy is a Way of Life. And that really inspired me because Hadot had done all the groundwork of figuring out these contemplative exercises and kind of cataloging them, meditation exercises or visualization exercises, other psychological techniques that mm. he found in Marcus Aurelius and in Hellenistic philosophy in general. And from Hadot, I learned, um, number one, that of all the different forms of ancient philosophy in the West, the Stoics were the school that predominantly specialized in psychotherapy and in these psychological techniques. Yeah. And that I learned from my own studies that Stoicism was the philosophical inspiration for cognitive therapy. So I thought, I can't understand why <laughs> Hadot never mentions cognitive therapy and why no psychotherapist has ever mentioned Hadot. And so it seemed really easy for me to then just kind of put a book together where I took what Hadot was saying and compared it to the techniques that we use in cognitive therapy and said, look, there's really obvious overlap between a, a lot of these techniques. Yeah. And then that kind of spawned we started after that a few years after that book came out i was doing other bits and pieces um i was a psychotherapist i ran a training school for psychotherapists and i was contacted by christopher gill 
who's now Professor Emeritus of Ancient Thought at Exeter University in, in England. And Chris Gill had been doing this thing with his students where they would live like Galen. Now, Galen is an ancient physician, he dabbled in philosophy. He was a court physician of right. Marcus Aurelius. And we have many writings that survived okay. from him. Because Galen, Galen was a terrible know-it-all and quite a kind of pompous <laughs> guy. So he loved to write books about his opinions. He's very eclectic thinker. He's actually one of our main sources for early Stoicism. He didn't agree with the Stoics, right. but he talks about them a lot. And uh, yeah. so they they tried to kind of follow Galen's advice to see how that would work out. And the students said, well, maybe we should live like Marcus Aurelius for a week as a kind of follow-up to this. And uh, they found an audio recording that I'd put online that I was using with my psychotherapy students of a, an exercise from Hado called The View From Above. It's one of the main, it's like a 20-minute guided contemplative exercise. And they had been doing okay. that at Exeter. So, so I take it helping people to actually yeah. view themselves. From, As if from yeah. a... Okay. Expansive yeah. perspective, as if viewing your life as part of a much larger spatial and temporal whole. So, common exercise. We could go go off on that one, can yeah. we? With objective reason and Marcus stuff. Marcus so talks about this a lot, <laughs> and, and we find this technique cropping up over and over again in ancient literature. But surprisingly, mm. um, you know, I can say with some confidence, there isn't. It's not a common technique. In modern psychotherapy, yeah. now somebody will go. Well, there's some like vague reference. I, I, I think it's something that's coming back. Oh, going to it's come coming back, back now, but yeah. I was surprised it... that there aren't really, you know, there's not much reference to some. There are most mm. of the other techniques you can find in the, Sto- in the Stoic literature. There are parallels to in modern CBT. The view from above is one of the main ones that we don't commonly use in CBT. Yeah. But there's an obvious rationale, psychological rationale for doing stuff like that. And actually, there's now a psychologist. A professor of psychology called John Varvaki in Toronto University who's doing uh, research, cognitive psychological research on the view from above and similar kind of cognitive uh, mechanisms. So that it's become, it's, kind of, it's definitely coming back even in, in uh, psychological yeah. research. So we, Chris got a team, you can see the video of the workshop we did still on, on YouTube. He organized okay. this workshop with about a dozen authors, psychologists, uh, psychotherapists, academics. And that was the beginning of what we call the Modern Stoicism organization. It's a non-profit. It's been around for over a decade now, and it runs this event every year called Stoic Week. The Stoic Yeah, Camp. and Stoicon runs a Stoicon yeah. conference as well. So when we started doing it, there was like a few dozen people, and then there was like a few hundred, and then now I think roughly 20,000 people have participated yeah. in Stoic Week over the years. And it's been covered. I can imagine that continuing to grow. It just got bigger and bigger. And it was yeah. covered in all of the newspapers in the UK. And then it got into the international media. And Stoicism, you know, just as a movement, kind of really crystallised. 